Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive, on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi there, guys. I'm Amy Wright, and today I'm very excited to share a conversation I had with acclaimed Americana artist Rachel Bayman. Bayman's known as a fearless voice, a gritty and defiant songwriter, and a heartbreaking observer of humanity. She moved to Nashville at 18 and has spent the last decade working as a musician in a wide variety of roles, from session musician with the likes of Molly Tuttle and Caroline Spence to live sidewoman with Casey Musgraves and Amy Ray. She's also released several of her own albums, the latest of which is titled Cycles. Inspired by the burgeoning grunge rock scene in Melbourne, Australia, she recorded her new album Down Under, and the songs make up a truly purposeful record. Here to talk about the new record and to share about her own story, please welcome Rachel Bayman. Hi, Rachel. How are you? Welcome to Diddy. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. So how has the last year been for you? I know that it's been different for a lot of people and what they were doing, but what were you doing and how was your life, et cetera, during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think similarly to most people, my life felt very upended. So the uh, first phase of the pandemic was just spent panicking as I had canceled you know, 60 plus shows that were on the books. And um, that was really hard. And then, you know, eventually I kind of settled into the day-to-day routine of living life really, really slow. Um, You know, having a really long, luxurious morning routine and trying to be somewhat productive. Um, I worked a lot on my Spanish, planted a garden, uh, wrote some songs. I did a lot of online teaching um, and just kind of tried to piece something together. So, I don't know about you, but when the pandemic first started and it was in the first few weeks, I was sort of in denial. I kept thinking this is a short-term problem. And Mm -hmm. then I went through a period of sort of depression about the fact that it was going to be long-term. And then I just settled in and, and started doing my thing. It was definitely a lesson in uh, not in letting go of that control and planning. I think for touring musicians, we're usually planning our schedule six to eight months out, if not more, for international tours. And so not being able to do that and not knowing when we were going to get started again um, was definitely something I had to kind of just learn to accept. And um I'm not saying I did that very easily, <laughs> but it was the reality. I mean, I think we had like at the beginning, I remember, because my husband's also a touring musician. So we would always be having these conversations. When are we going to be able to get back on the road? And of course, in March, when everything got canceled, it was like, oh, well, I hope the summer festivals are OK. And it, looking back, it's like hilarious because it was <laughs> like the whole nother summer, basically, whereas festivals are canceled. So. Well, none of us could have predicted the flow of this, the cadence, how long it would last or anything like that. So it was just a really bizarre chapter. And now it's very exciting. It's sort of behind us and things are getting back to normal. So, um, well, I wanted to get to know you a little bit better. You were born in Chicago, right? Or you grew up in Chicago? Yeah. I, well, I wasn't technically born in Chicago, but I was largely raised there. I lived there from when I was four till when I was 18. So that's kind of my hometown. When I read that your dad is a radical 
or was a radical economist and your mom still was a is. Social, still, still is. is. <laughs> so what yeah. is a radical economist? So in his case, it's uh, someone who, who believes that our fundamental relationship with economics is largely flawed. So he's kind of, he's a, an academic and he um, is a democratic socialist. So he's kind of, um, he believes that our American philosophy of economics, which is like very much based on capitalism is inherently flawed. And that's kind of been his, um, like personal uh, passion in his career for so many years. And it was really interesting in 2016 with the rise of Bernie Sanders to see all of these people suddenly getting on board with that notion and saying, yeah, we're democratic socialists too. And I was like, my dad's been saying this since I was like five and everyone thought he was nuts. So it's been kind of fun to see that become a more like common conversation in this country. He found his tribe finally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that he, he had his little tribe, but they were like real fringe, mm -hmm. you know, and now it's becoming a little bit more of a mainstream um, idea, especially as people kind of realize that other countries do have universal health care and universal college education and this kind of thing. And so I think um, there's, there's been a lot of new conversations, obviously in the last five or six years, but that's definitely been one of them. Well, one of the things I, I read about it was that it focuses on the positive aspects of being a human. And I thought that that was kind of interesting. And I just didn't know if, because you, you grew up playing the fiddle, right? Or when did you start playing the fiddle? Yeah, I was four when I started on the fiddle. You were in a tiny little fiddle. <laughs> yes, <laughs> 16th size, I think. One sixteenth. Yeah. I'm a fiddle player too. And I went through Suzuki and did all that. Awesome. And I started with a little violin and worked my way up. And um, so, you know, I, I love fiddle players, obviously, <laughs> for that reason. Yeah. So all this influence, you had a lot going on. Did that sort of positively impact your desire to play music? I mean, having all these um, sort of, mm -hmm. I would say, liberal thought processes around you, how did that impact your, your desire to be a musician? I think that it was largely separate up until I started writing songs. Um, when I was growing up, I was really into just being an instrumentalist. I fell in love with fiddle music and I wanted to get really good at the instrument. I wasn't singing at all really, or writing songs. I was really just focused on um, playing like old time and bluegrass music. And that was kind of my thing. And I didn't really, I mean, I actually found all of the political conversation that went on in my house quite stressful. Like I wasn't really, um, I didn't really enjoy that. Uh, it made me really anxious because my dad is like very, um, he's a professor. So he professes, you know, like it's not a conversation. So we would be sitting around the dinner table and he would just give us this big lecture about how the world was going to end and we're all going to die. And it was just kind of like, <laughs> oh, so I um, I think it was more of an escape for me as a kid. That was kind of just my thing that I did. And it was a really positive thing that I focused on and felt made me feel optimistic and excited about traveling and seeing other parts of the world and different cultures because I got into their different types of fiddle music, you know, and um, 
my parents were super cool and supportive of of my music and I think that they really understood it because they they like to go to folk festivals and they like to go contra dancing and stuff so they really they got it and they were supportive and when I started writing songs which was much later like in my 20s probably in college I started writing a little bit and that's when I suddenly um I mean really with the writing of shame was the first time that I really made that kind of full circle back to that upbringing. It was always kind of in there, but it was very dormant for a while, I would say. Where did you go to college and were you studying music there or just something else entirely? I got a really good scholarship to go to Vanderbilt, but I had to study, I had to stay in the School of Arts and Sciences. So I actually couldn't be a music major, but I spent a lot of time in the music department. Um, it was a classical conservatory, which was not really my um, area of expertise. I was a very um, a- average classical violin player, like <laughs> very mediocre classical violin player. So um, I studied anthropology and that was really cool because anthropology is, you know, this the study of human culture. And so I was really able to direct my personal projects. Like when I was given the opportunity to pick a topic of my choice, I spent a lot of time writing about different music and traditional music. I, I got a summer research grant to transcribe the music of the Skillet Lickers, which is like this North Georgia old time band. And oh, interesting. So there was like ways that I could kind of make that into my type of music that I wanted to study. Um, but it was also a really interesting topic. I don't think I ever thought I was going to be an anthropologist, but I enjoyed the classes that I took. Well, so now you happen to be in Nashville, which happens to be a huge music town. Mm-hmm. And were you playing or connecting with other musicians while you were in school? Or was that mostly after school? It, it was... Um, about around my junior year of school, I mean, I that was my goal in coming to Nashville. You know, I thought, oh, great. Well, I'll be in Nashville. I can go to the station and I can meet people and, and jam on fiddle tunes and really kind of dive into that scene. And my first two years, I was really frustrated because I just couldn't get off. Like Vanderbilt's a very insular school. The camp, everyone lives on campus. I didn't have a car. I was underage. And I didn't, I don't think I really realized because since I grew up in Chicago, I thought that every city was accessible in that way because in Chicago, I could just get on a train and go downtown. And that was just not the case in Nashville. And you can really, if you don't have a car, it's, you can get stuck. And I wasn't allowed in any of the bars, so I couldn't go to any of the shows. And so I spent two years just kind of like, oh, so frustrated. I knew town, but I couldn't find them. And um, there was one jam on Wednesday nights that I knew about and I could get into. And I was always trying to find someone to drive me there. Does anyone want to go to the five spot? And, you know, <laughs> I was like, no, we're doing our Vanderbilt thing. And I was like, oh, come on. So I had, I didn't really find my, you know, people at Vanderbilt at all. So I was a real loner and I was just kind of looking for that Nashville hang that I knew was there. And, um, what happened was my junior year, I went to Scotland for a semester to do a semester abroad, and it was incredible. And I was able to really dive into the music scene there. I knew like two people through mutual friends. I was of age. I could walk everywhere. And so I totally dove in there and felt like I 
found my people and had a great time and played jams and gigs and stuff. And then I came back and I was like, okay, if I can do this in Scotland, I can do this in Nashville, you know? So I, I got my brother's old car and I turned 21 and then I started meeting people. And I actually met in my junior year, I met some of my, to this day, absolute best friends in Nashville, like Kelsey Walden, Shelby Means and Christian Settlemeyer. Those were like my core crew of people that I hung out with and they've all gone on to have amazing music careers and they're still my best friends. So it's pretty cool. Was it old time music, bluegrass type style of music that you were playing initially? Because we're going to get to Cycles, your new album, which I think is a little bit different. So so I want to sort of explore, you know, that that change a little bit for Mm -hmm. you. But you were playing more of a bluegrass music or... Well, it, interesting in Nashville. Um, I mean, in Scotland, it was largely Scottish music and something I was interested in, but there was also people that wanted to learn American tunes. So I would show them, you know, a little cultural exchange, but um, in Nashville, you know, my background was primarily in old time and bluegrass, but that scene is very fluid, you know, between, old country music, you know, more classic styles of country music or or outlaw country music and bluegrass and um, kind of Americana, different styles. And um, that's really when I fell in love with songs and songwriting because I was hanging out with all these Nashville people that were obsessed with the art of songwriting. And Kelsey uh, was playing me, you know, Towns Van Zandt and, Dolly Parton's um, The Grass is Blue album and, you know, all these kind of, and Christian was playing me like Neil Young. And there was a lot that I had just really missed because I was just listening to fiddle tunes. And so I think this is kind of when the transition started for me in terms of really wanting to understand songs and be a part of that creative process. So at what point did you decide that you wanted to put out your first album? And that was Shame, right? Yeah, I Shane was kind of my first um, real, like, original material album. I did put out a, an album before that, which was more f- based on fiddle stuff. And it was a project that I wanted to kind of capture some of that music I've been working on in Scotland. So I put that out in, like, 2014. And that was more of, like, a... I don't know, it was like a self-release and it felt like more of an exploratory academic project, I guess. And when I put out Shame, that was the first one that was like, okay, this is my voice. This is my songwriting. And um, I was writing that material in like 2015, 2016, I guess. Came out in 2017. So um, I had these songs and um, I was playing in a band called Ten String Symphony at the time, which was much more on the bluegrass side of things. And I was writing these songs and I, I just thought, you know, these are, these don't feel like songs for that project. They feel like songs that are personal to me, that are my voice and something that I want to have the ability to play with the instrumentation and have a bigger production on and put it out under my own name. And I reached out to um, Andrew Marlin, who is the lead singer of Mandolin Orange now called Watch House. And I had met him at a gig in in Chapel Hill, I think, which is like his hometown. And so we had jammed and, you know, we had a good rapport and I was like, I'm just really loving the sound that you're getting on your records. And you seem to be doing a really magical production thing out there. Like I'd love to make an album with you. And 
he was totally up for it and was like, hey, you know, it doesn't have to be as far away as you think. Just like come out here, we'll work on a few songs, we'll see how it goes. And and that's what we did. So over the course of the year, I just went out there a few different times between tours and we did three songs at a time or four songs at a time. And it was completely magical. And that was kind of the start of the um, kind of like Rachel Bayman project, you know, like that, that like as a band or an artistic project under my own name. But you were already singing, right? Yeah, I was already singing like my, so my band Ten String Symphony, which was a fiddle and banjo duo with Christian. I was singing a lot. He was singing a lot that, you know, it's a duo. So you kind of have to do everything. So it was within that project that I kind of made the transition from just being a fiddle player to being like a front person. And it was a shared thing with Christian. Um, but I was doing a lot of the singing and definitely most of the lyrical writing for that band. Um, but I guess the songs felt less personal to me. They felt more like stylistic to that band, if that makes sense. It was sort of like my, I mean, I think there's some, I think there's some great songs in that material, but it was much more of like a band songwriting versus like a personal songwriting. Well, and the, of course, you know, the topics you were covering in shame, maybe were more Mm -hmm. your personal topics. And so it yeah, definitely. I mean, I think because I, when I wrote that song, Shame, I was like, you know, this is something I want to sing for that I'm saying, you know, it didn't feel like something I wanted to share with a male bandmate because it was like such a specific viewpoint that I felt like I wanted to represent. And um, there was a, a couple other songs on that record, um, Take a Stand and some that are just so personal that I felt like, you know, this, this has to really come from me. So let's let's fast forward to Cycles, because that's the album that just came out. And you actually recorded it, though, before the pandemic. Right. You recorded it in 2019. So obviously interrupted from releasing it and touring for it. But you recorded it in Australia. Yeah, I recorded that with a great musician named Olivia Halley, who's based in Melbourne. And that's why I ended up doing the recording in Australia. We recorded that back in 2019. And I spent the first half of 2020 kind of working with Shawnee, the amazing mix engineer to kind of get the mixes exactly right. And since I knew that, well, it was already like the pandemic had already befallen us. And so I was just like really taking my time going deep into those mixes. And cause I was like, well, I don't really have a deadline. I might as well just get this exactly how I want it. And, um, and then spent like most of the pandemic, just panicking about how I was going to ever be able to <laughs> release it. And now it feels like it's really the right time. And I'm, I'm so excited that it's finally out there in the world. Well, and Olivia is in a band called OPEP, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're so, so amazing. Yes. Yeah. I was listening to some of the music. And and so what did you think that she specifically would bring to your album cycles? Well, there was a few different things. Um, I was really inspired by a lot of different artists coming out of that Melbourne scene. Um, obviously, OPEP kind of being at the top of that list, but also... Um, Dan Parsons and Courtney Barnett and Angie McMahon and this band Big Smoke. Like there's a lot of, there was a lot of really, really cool music. And I think I was lucky to be exposed to that kind of scene because um, my husband lived in Melbourne for 10 years. So his friends are those are in that scene, you know? So I kind of was like, wow, this is amazing music. And so I kind of had that 
in my mind in terms of a sound and a style for the record. And I was listening to a lot of, like I've been inspired by a lot of more contemporary artists like Lily Hyatt or Margaret Glassby. It's like a little bit more of an edgy sound. It's sort of coming out of this Americana realm, but I love that like grunginess and I wanted to like capture some of that. And, um, but Olivia was in Nashville. Um, I guess it was maybe even late 2018 or early in 2019. And um, she does some writing over here regularly. And she asked if I'd want to write with her, um, which was a huge, I was like, yes, please. <laughs> so excited. And uh, we just had this amazing co-writing session, which ended up being for the title track of the album Cycles. And the connection during that writing session was such that I, I just thought, wow, this is like amazing artistic energy. It's like, if you go on a first date and you're like, I'm going to marry this person, like perfect. <laughs> so um, I just thought, well, songwriting wise, her, like I'm a very lyric driven writer. So generally I start with lyrics and I feel really like I, I get really nitty gritty about lyrics and I want every single word to make sense. And I want it all to like be perfect. And then I try to put it to a melody and Liv is exactly the opposite. She's pretty casual about lyrics and her melodic sensibility is just incredible. I mean, the melodies that just like emerge from her, I'm just like, where did that come from? It's incredible. So I felt like when we worked together, there was this really nice yin and yang of like, lyrics and melody and being able to have both people prioritizing one of those things. And I think that's where a lot of the magic happened on some of the songs that, that we worked on together for the album. So there was a few, yeah, that's, I guess, a few different elements that she, that I hope she would bring to the record. And she absolutely did. Well, it sounds like the perfect marriage because you have someone on the one hand who's really focused on the lyrics and on the other hand, you've got someone who's incredible with melody and you know, bring those two together. And the album is great, by the way. I just have to say that. Mm-hmm. I was listening to the whole thing last night and I was really enjoying the music. And it's, it is melodic, but it also has really deep meaning. And we're going to get to some of the songs because I think they're really incredible. So when did you meet your husband then in all of this? Um, well, he was already in the picture. So we met in 2015. Well, we have, we've actually known each other for years because I met him at a festival in Australia the first time I went there. So maybe 2013 or 20, yeah, 2013. It must've been, we'd have been friends for years and um, he was in Nashville for a few months on a tour uh, when we got together and started dating long distance for a while. And then he ended up moving over here, I guess in 2015, 2016, we spent a lot of time going back and forth, you know, over those years between dating long distance and then getting together and still having him still having work over there and um, me working over there. So like, I feel like I've just had a lot of access to that, to that music scene. Yeah. It's great that I was wondering what the connection was to Melbourne when I saw Mm -hmm. that you had recorded a cycles there and now it makes a lot more sense. (laughs) Yeah. I had a little bit of an in. Well, so let's talk about some of the songs. Let's start with Wyoming wildflowers about the existence of white supremacy amidst all this beauty. So that song um, was written the day after that, uh, like Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, where they had the 
there was a counter protester who was killed by a person driving in with the into the counter protest just like a really ugly day in um in our in a very ugly year actually you know and very ugly years in this country so um that rally was uh on the news you know the day after and at the time i happened to be out in wyoming as you might imagine and um my, some of my best friends were getting married. Uh, one of those friends that I mentioned meeting at the five spot back in the day. And so, you know, when your best friends get married and it's just always like the most beautiful, happy occasion. And I mean, assuming you feel good about the marriage, but <laughs> I was really excited for them. And we were in this beautiful rural part of Wyoming and um, George, my husband was with me and we went on this little vacation after and we we're hiking or kind of around the Jackson whole area. It's just gorgeous. And I'd never been out there before. And like, I guess I didn't know these beautiful parts of Wyoming. So that's why I was kind of like, that's where the line, like, how come nobody told me comes from? Because I was like, what is this? Nobody told me Wyoming has this like gorgeous scenery. Um, and anyway, so it was really this... Um, kind of like weird brain trip to be feeling like this is my country and this is my country, you know, like these two things, this is so beautiful, so incredible, so full of love, these awesome people, this awesome landscape, like there's so much here. And then this insane ugliness and like, why when you have all this beauty in the world, would you choose this route of ugliness? And so I was kind of meditating on, you know, what, what would it take for someone to be so sad and angry that they would choose this path? And I kind of was thinking, well, they must have not ever seen this kind of beauty or not had the chance to experience something that, you know, made them feel generous and empathetic towards others. So that's kind of like where, where the song came from. And when I brought it to Liv, she, I was telling her the story about it and she ended up working with me on that outro, which kind of circles it back to the initial rally where it says, um, I made you a bouquet of dandelions stood in the silence after the sirens, which is like kind of an image of a vigil for that event. Um, and I love how she helped me kind of circle it back to the, to the initial idea behind it. And in general, a lot of the songs on cycles are that yin and yang in life and, mm -hmm. and how we go through life and experience the ups and the downs and the opposites. Yeah. So Rust Belt Fields was mm -hmm. uh, another song on the album. And that also kind of carries that theme as well, where you've got people who are hardworking, hardworking folks, and they're seeing their existence disappear through no fault of their own by automation and factories and some other things, right? Yeah, absolutely. That song is actually written by Rod Picot and Slade Cleaves. And um, the first time I heard that song, it just absolutely blew me away. And I'm from Chicago and I spent a lot of time because I was like playing this more rural music, fiddle music um, I spent a lot of time in the rural Midwest striving to kind of like fiddle locations like for festivals or contests or whatever so I feel like as soon as I heard the song I could visualize all of these towns that had just been kind of destroyed by outsourcing and automation and um 
actually there's a neighborhood in Chicago right next to where I grew up that has, it's literally just empty factory after empty factory. And um, I, you know, grew up taking the train through there and just looking out the windows and it's, it hasn't changed in the entire time that, you know, since I was four, it's always been like that. So um, I think that song is the reason I wanted to include it. And the reason I love it so much is because it is a political it could be considered a political song, but it's just somebody's story, somebody's perspective and someone's uh, experience of feeling like they don't, that they lack dignity and purpose um, and that they've been kind of sold a tale that if they work hard, they will be successful and have a good life. And, and it's been completely untrue for them. And, to me, that is the kind of song that I strive to write because it's it might touch on an important socio-political issue, but it's done in such a way that it's impossible not to feel empathy for the character. And it's not telling anybody what they should and shouldn't do or think. It's just providing a perspective and creating more understanding, you know, and that's always what I want to do with my art uh, if I can is to kind of create more empathy and understanding at a time when there's, when it's the kind of feels like it's at an all time low, you know? Yeah. It's very interesting about small towns because, you know, for years they, they have been drying up, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. part of that is farming became automated and Mm -hmm. all these things that were part of the, part of people's lives moved to big cities. And then, you know, there wasn't much left there. And I was reading this article and your song kind of reminded me of the fact that over the past year that people started moving out of big cities because they started realizing the value of small towns and they have these Zoom towns that are popping up just because. Zoom towns. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Isn't that funny? Because people realize they can work using new technology. They can work from there. But then I thought that's going to be an interesting sort of situation, you know, moving back to these small towns, that doesn't change the fact that a lot of people who still live in these small towns don't have jobs. So that's going to be interesting. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say like, just uh, one thing that that song addresses really well is um, the kind of just movement of labor out of this country, which has been a huge um, problem across the board. And, you know, technology and automation is one thing, but the other thing is just companies being willing to move jobs to another country for profit margins when, you know, hundreds of people that have worked for that company for years and years, like just, they're just out of luck. You know, your job doesn't exist anymore. And I think that is something that we have a real problem with in this country is like the fact that profit margin is prioritized over having good jobs for people, you know? So I think that's like, for me, that's what that song is about. If you were to get very political about it. <laughs> no, Zoom town. Interesting though. <laughs> I know it'll be an interesting, it'll be an interesting tell and in seeing how all this comes full circle. But yeah, I mean, for years we've been outsourcing to China and other countries and mm-hmm. I, I do see at least some trend to move jobs back here. 
I do as well. Yeah. And I think it's actually on both sides of the political spectrum, which is interesting. You know, it's one of the few things that all of us could probably agree on, even if we don't agree on the method of making it happen. But um, I think that, you know, you have to, when we talk about, you know, profitability and making money, it's like, well, making money for who? You know, are we making money for the 10 people that are at the top of the company or are we making money that actually gives this big swath of workers good, dignified jobs with healthcare and benefits and all these kind of things? So um, I think that's something anyone could agree on, though, honestly. True. I think I think it takes entrepreneurs that are interested in social justice yeah. and for, you know, fairness for, for folks. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's changing. We see mm-hmm. a lot of that changing as well. Um, so mm-hmm. cycles, let's talk about cycles because that's the title track. What yeah. was that song about? So that is the one that I first wrote for the, for the record with Liv. And um, it was inspired by my sister-in-law and my brother who kind of went through this brutal experience of um, they, you know, she got pregnant and at five months her water broke and she ended up losing the child. And, um, it was like so dramatic and horrible. Like she had to go through the whole process. Um, and I, and George, George and myself, my husband were kind of first on the scene cause we're the closest relatives. So I felt like I kind of witnessed it very closely, the whole process. And, um, it was also the first, in my family, you know, they were the first to try to have a kid in my family. So I didn't really, I don't feel like I had an understanding before that of how common miscarriage or um, losing children in childbirth or, you know, all these different complications with pregnancy. I just didn't really understand how common that was, I think, until it, you know, really happened in my family. And one thing that was so like amazing in that situation was watching the grandparents, like my mother and her mother, and the way that they kind of had this generational wisdom about the experience of women and pregnancy. And I was just sort of in awe of that. And like, wow, this is so amazing. Like, I, I think women have these, like this, all this secret knowledge that they don't really, you don't know about until you see it come out. And I was telling Liv about that. And we had a long conversation about, um, those experiences. And we, when we wrote the song, we purposefully, um, made it so that it could be sung from mother to child, grandmother to new mother, you know, like my mom to my sister-in-law or her mom to her and, or like grandmother to grandchild. So we wanted it to kind of reflect that, generational wisdom and, and shared experience of, of women that are involved in childbirth of any kind. So I thought that was like, it was sort of my, like not having experienced it myself. It was sort of like my like, ode, like, wow, you're amazing. <laughs> well, and it takes us a while to grow up and actually appreciate the generations that are ahead yeah. of us. Right. Absolutely. And that's something I talked to someone about, um, when they were asking about the the change in writing between, you know, shame and cycles. And I was like, well, you know, I've had a few more years and a lot of intense family experiences, which I think helps you appreciate the different characters and experiences in your family um, 
kind of, I've had a more zoomed out perspective, I guess. So what about the jokes on me? What is that about? Okay. Well, that's a very zoomed in perspective on myself. (laughs) So uh, that's just, I think there's a lot of uh, songs on this record about just wrestling with my own mental cycles, which is another, you know, thing that relates back to the title. Um, That one, you know, I start to recognize these cyclical patterns that go on in my head of like working really hard, having a lot of, ambition and then kind of crashing and wondering why I'm so concerned about X or Y or why I'm bothering to like do whatever it is that I'm doing and um, feeling like the more you try, the harder it is when you get let down. So I think that is just a very um, in the moment, wrestling with my own thought patterns and trying to reckon with the fact that like you can kind of make yourself miserable in the day-to-day when you should be enjoying it because you're trying for the next day which is like that line, you know, I lose every day to tomorrow. It's because I'm spending every day worried so much about the next day that I don't ever take the time to enjoy what's happening on that day. And um, I think that's something anyone could go through in any profession. But for me, it's very much about the music business and self-promotion that's required and the kind of psychological toll that that takes. I think we can always second guess ourselves and decisions we make and Mm -hmm. Because you don't know the outcome when you try new Mm -hmm. things. And and we all go through those types of cycles and (laughs) and regrets. And and then, like you said, not really living in the moment and just enjoying Mm -hmm. the day that we're in. Instead, constantly being worried about what's next. So so there's so many uh, songs on this album, and I can't wait for people to, to listen to it. But I did have a question for you. So since you recorded it and wrote it basically pre-pandemic, and then over the last year, there were all these events, craziness Mm -hmm. going on, and on all sorts of levels, did any of the events of the last year change your perspective on any of the songs you wrote or just inspire you for new ones? Yeah, there is some songs on there that have taken on definitely new meaning. Um, especially the song No Good Time for Dying. I think I wrote that about my grandmother kind of her demise from a very healthy, active existence to a really kind of mm, sad and undignified state, which I hated to see. And I wrote that song and she passed away in February 2020, like right before Mm -hmm. Um, the pandemic hit and I am so grateful because she would she would not have coped Mm. you know it only would have made things 100 times worse and since the pandemic you know a lot I mean all of us have really had to like think about death all the time which is not something we enjoy (laughs) thinking about Um, but every decision we made was kind of fraught with this idea of oh God, am I going to 
spread Corona to someone and they die or, you know, it just, it became so existential, everything that we did. And so that song, you know, has really felt more timely to me than it did when I wrote it, I guess. There is one song that I think is kind of funny. Well, it became kind of funny, which is like Ships in the Night. I always like have been telling this joke at, at my shows recently because I was like, well, you know, I wrote this song. My husband and I are both touring musicians and we're always like missing each other on the road and just being in the same town, but on different, like one day apart or whatever. And I'm like, oh man, like we're Ships in the Night. We never see each other. So sad. But then, of course, during the pandemic, it was like the complete opposite. We were just like <laughs> locked together in a room in the house. We couldn't get away from each other. I was like, I hope I still like you by the end of this, you know. And so that's kind of one that was funny. But as soon as, you know, now that the album's out, it's relevant again because we're both on the road again immediately. So um, I think it it does feel good to be singing out an album about family and family members and kind of existential questions of life right now because I think it's something we've all had to reckon with in those familial relationships whether it's biological or chosen family have just become all the more important during this time so I think it you know it feels like a good time to be to be singing the songs even though I obviously didn't know what was in store when they were written. (laughs) So how does it feel to be playing in front of a live audience again? It feels amazing. I thought that I was fine. But as soon as I played my first real show, you know, inside, like with a real audience, not people spread out a million miles away. I just, I felt like a part of me had returned. You know, I feel more myself than I have in two years, probably, you know, after all this. And it's something I think we can, we're all more adaptable than we think. And we can get used to anything, probably not anything, most things. But um, it's not something I ever want to get used to again because I missed it so much. And I think it, you know, definitely made me realize that it's something that I need to do forever as long as I can, you know. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on Diddy. It Cycles is an amazing album, but more importantly, than just picking up a copy. They also need to come see you live while you're touring. Yeah. And uh, you know, all music is so great live. And we're big supporters of live music here at Diddy TV. But we wish you the best of luck. And hopefully thank you come through Memphis at some point. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Take care. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Rachel Bayman. Be sure to check out her new studio album, Cycles, available now at rachelbayman.com. And remember, you can visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and download the official free Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 